Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 85 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 85, Scott and I will be, first of all, talking about some quick announcements to remind everybody of a few things and actually inform you of a few things. Uh, We'll be talking about some question writing theory, uh, some stuff that Scott's been thinking a lot about, some reference question ideas. Uh, Scott is going to distill, uh, in a a sense, some of his past or our past uh, umbrages uh, regarding uh, question types and sort of question quizzing theory. I've got some a marked question from CBQZ via last week's AQL Meet that I wanted to kind of dive into. And probably most interesting of all, there's been a fairly significant amount of Slack channel conversations in the Inside Quizzing channel on Slack about motivations and incentives uh, for quizzing them. And so we're going to kind of dive into that. Uh, both the stuff that has been discussed in the channel and some stuff that is on uh, Scott and my minds. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about what a thriving district is and sort of um, maybe a pet theory around what causes a district to be thriving versus non-thriving. So we'll kind of go into those sort of things. All right, so announcements first. So one of the first things I want to talk about is actually there's only two things now that I look at the list. Um, So the first item on our list of announcements is all eight seasons of materials are now available in the CBQZ app. And they are going to be probably within a couple of hours of finishing this broadcast. We will have all of them available on the CBQZ website for downloading as well. So in the CBQZ app, you just, you know, on your main page, you just select whatever season you want and away you go Um, on the CBQZ main uh, website. So just cbqz.org without the, you know, app on the end of it. Uh, down near the bottom of the page, there's links to download all the materials like in Word or PDF or HTML or Excel or whatever else. And so all that stuff is there for like, I think three or four seasons, but all eight of the, of the seasons will be available here shortly, probably within an hour or two after we're done recording. Um, the other thing is sort of a re-announcement. want to make sure everybody is aware that the new rule book is out there. Please go read it. Um, please comment on it. Uh, get people in your district talking about it. I mean, now certainly it's not particularly important in and of itself because, you know, like we said, it's, it's, it, it, we're, we're striving for functional equivalence. So if you ignore it entirely and just stick with a 2018 rule book, you pretty much are going to be doing exactly the same thing. Uh, but nevertheless, it is the future. And uh, very shortly after it is ratified, we're going to be starting to make changes within the new rule book, uh, you know, adding clarifications and making changes to so- some of those rules that are there. And we want to make sure that everybody is aware of how that process is going to take place because everybody can be involved in that process. And we want to solicit as much involvement from anybody who is interested in being involved as possible. Uh, so that's it for announcements. Scott, do you have any thoughts on either of those announcements or anything else that I forgot? Can't think of anything. All right, cool. Well, let's dive into question writing theory. And Scott, why don't you take it away? All right. So the first one is within the realm of quiz questions that are both valid and good. So we're often talking about quiz questions that are valid, but we're debating whether or not they are good. So I'm talking about quiz questions that are both valid and good. Are there still specific qualities that work best in a particular competitive context? And I phrase that in a very vague and abstract way, but what I'm meaning to ask is, um, when looking either at question difficulty or finish these two versus finish this, or interrogatives um, with a leading interrogative versus a trailing interrogative, or any other kind of quality that you can think of for a quiz question, are there some that are really well suited for, say, um, testing quizzer, quizzers at internationals, but maybe a lot what less well-suited for testing quizzers at the district. Or maybe there's a type and structure and quality of question, not quality, qualities of a question that are great for testing a junior quizzer or a consolation quizzer, but less good at testing an internationals or interdistrict district meet quizzer. What do you think, Griffin? 
Yeah, I totally think there are. Um, and so I, I sort of put this into sort of two buckets um, or two tiers, I guess. So the the I think there are definitely things that make certain types better than other types. And even within a particular type, certain questions of that type are uh, how they are written and choices about how they are written. They become better at testing material in competitive contexts than other choices where both choices are both good and valid, right? Um, but I think there are really kind of two tiers of thought when it comes to this stuff. I think, and I don't have any data other than a scientific study I just made up in my head, but I believe fairly strongly that the first tier needs to be what's the best question that the material itself evokes, right? So like if you're looking at a particular verse, there will be verses that are just sort of they they they're parts of that the, there's parts of the material that just sort of scream a particular question type they just they lend themselves very eloquently to a particular type or a series of types and kind of work with other type but types but not as well in terms of like you know you kind of have to bend over backwards to kind of shoehorn certain types into certain situations and so forth and i think you can make all of those cases valid. I think you can make most of those cases good, but I think there are certain types for the material that actually work better than others that are even better than just good, right? They, they actually uh, fully evoke uh, testing material knowledge and so forth, right? So uh, I don't have specific examples there, but I think the th my theory goes then that sort of tier one is always trumping everything else is the material itself, right? Like, so, you know, if I'm looking at a particular verse, I might really want to write a chapter verse reference question, but instead of searching for a CVR within that particular verse, which is entirely possible, right? You can almost always find something that you can turn into a CVR probably. Um, I, sh I should actually start by reading the verse and say, what are the, you know, two, three, four, five questions that this material seems to naturally want to be written as, and then kind of go from there. Then the second tier, I think, are more sort of general principles that I think we have, we have been able to induce over years of question writing that are generally true, but there are always exceptions, right? Um, and I say gener generally true, also understanding that this sort of idea is a tier two, um, always subordinate to the, the tier one concept of the material, whatever's in the material always trumps everything, I think. But under a tier two, and I'll give you one example of what I think tends to be true in a tier two, is let's, let's take a, an interrogative, a standard question. An interrogative that, let's say you have a, a, a verse that where you can write an interrogative question and as a question writer, you have the option of deciding where to stop with how long your answer is that's required to get the question correct, right? Uh, and a lot of that is subjective. A lot of that is up to the question writer to make a judgment call. And I think all other things being equal, assuming that we have already handled, you know, the tier one, you know, consideration, I think in tier two, we are, I think in tier two, you end up in a situation with an inter interrogative question where all other things being equal, the longer the answer that is required on the card, still assuming validity and goodness, the better in terms of testing knowledge. Anyway, that's a lot of info, but does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think your first point that the material evokes certain sorts of question types and um, structures, and that's always foremost, right? And to me, that falls under the good. If you're forcing a specific question type from a, from a verse that doesn't really have it there, then that's probably not going to be a good question, even if it is a valid question. But I think this leads very well into my next point, which is quiz question difficulty. So I think in, in general, the difficulty level of a quiz question is based on two components. One is how long it takes that question to become unique, and the second is word count. Now I think in some, in some questions there is a third one, which is even at the point at which a question is unique, how vague is it? And so like reference questions that fall under this, like I can t tell you, um, according to Matthew chapter 17, verse six, you are 
and maybe it is unique at that point, but it's still super vague and requires you to know that specific verse by the reference pretty well. But in general, it's how long a question takes to become unique and how and word count. So basically, how many words are in the question and the answer. And I think that ha- the extent to which each of those components are actually difficult matters a ton depending on the type of quiz that you're looking at. So for the matter so for simplicity's sake, I'm going to reference an 80th percentile quizzer and a 20th percentile quizzer, not as the value judgment, but just as a matter of fact, right? Those quizzers exist. So I think for an 80th percentile quizzer, word count is much less of a component of difficulty because if you give them something unique, odds are that they are going to be able to get it right, even if the answer is um, 30 words versus 10. That's not really a big difference for them. Take a 20th percentile quizzer, the amount of words required for them to get a question right could be quite a large factor in how difficult something is. And then flip it to um, time to become unique. That's, to me, the main criteria or the main component of difficulty for that 80th percentile quizzer because you're fighting over um, your jump points and where that is that something becomes unique. And so at internationals, if something becomes unique on the fourth syllable, that question is way more difficult than something that becomes unique on the second syllable because the odds that you get to that fourth syllable are very low. Now, this is still a component of difficulty for the 20th percentile quizzer, but often they are never jumping at two syllables versus four syllables, so it is de facto not um, a component of difficulty for them. But taken in in concert with my first statement, I'm just wondering if for certain levels of competition, right, like junior quizzing or consolation quizzing, skewing or being able to select questions that maybe are of lower word count would be better. And when I say better, I mean it gives all quizzers more of a chance to get them right um, while still fostering like competition between everyone. But to me, if all the questions are just really difficult, either because it's mainly because of word count that you just get a bunch of no jumps in a quiz, then that's not very... Um, that's not good for anyone, right? And so I, I think I'm I'm struggling a little bit to make my, a, a specific, succinct point, but maybe you can jump in with thoughts and help me summarize. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I, I'm going to be brilliant on this or not, probably on the not side of things, uh, given my track record. But it seems to me there's sort of, when you're talking about skewing a question set, I think we sort of have three big buckets that we can sort of, uh, we can do things with, right? So imagine buckets A, B, and C, B's in the middle, and B is the questions are of whatever length the material just sort of naturally lends itself to, uh, independent of, of any other factors, right? So if you have a bunch of, you know, question writing nerds who are very, very skilled, and you give them one verse out of context, uh, they don't think about anything else. They don't, they're not considering the, the question set. They're not considering any other factors. And they're just told, write the best, I don't know, the best three, the best five possible questions that you can from this verse, right? Uh, whatever it happens to be, right? Um, then the, let's call that bucket B. If you take that and then you extrapolate it for across the entire material set, right? Um, so that's sort of bucket B, right? Then in bucket A, you say, okay, what we're going to do is when we are making choices about writing questions. So ba- basically bucket A is bucket B, only we're going to, when we have the option of making choices about various things, we will try to choose to write easier questions based on your definition of easier, right? So um, more words in them, more unique in the sense of of not uniqueness in terms of, I, I don't know, what's the right way to describe it? Not, not mathematical or logical uniqueness, but more cognitive uniqueness. Is sure, that, sure. I don't know how to describe it, but I mean, the, the thing that you were talking about, right? Skew, it's really recognizability. Yeah, recognizability, right? Right. Um, uh, sort of layman recognizability, almost like, like how about parental recognizability, right? A parent who goes to quiz practices, who doesn't memorize, but goes to practices and goes to quiz meets and they hear something and they kind of recognize it. Um, Whereas, you know, they may not recognize a verse number 
necessarily, but they might recognize a phrase and be like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard that before, you know, that kind of thing. So if you're skewing in that direction, let's call that bucket A. And then if you skew the other direction where you tend to be favoring like high, uh, higher levels of, let's say, reference questions and especially CVRs and your CVRs are very, very, very small in, you know, he, what, she, what, they, what, uh, you know, uh, when, what, or something, I don't know. It's, it's very, very, very vague, you know, kind of stuff over on that end of the spectrum, right? And let's, let's say you skew things to, to C, right? So you've got this A and B and C. So the problem with A is that well, let, let's talk about talk about the good things. What's the good thing? What's good about A? Having a, a question set that that that's leans toward the bucket A side of, of things. Well, that's really great for encouraging uh, entry level quizzers or quizzers who haven't memorized that much. It's really great to give them encouragement, motivation because they get to uh, achieve something a little bit easier. Uh, if you're in, you know, even in even in a quiz meet, but certainly in practices, if you have more sort of bucket A questions, there's an opportunity to, for people to jump on a question that they, on material they have not memorized and actually just guess and generally get pretty close and maybe even get it right most of the time, right? Um, that that, that kind of happens with sort of bucket A questions. Um, but the problem with bucket A questions is now let's say you've uh, memorized a lot and you have a, you know, a really good grasp of the material and you're kind of honing your skills. It's much more difficult for you to sort of separate yourself uh, in that upper strata of quizzers. Now in a smaller district, it's probably not a big deal. But if you're in a fairly large district, let's say you're talking about like 200 quizzers, 300 quizzers or whatever in a particular district, and you're in the top 5%, well, okay, how do I differentiate myself between, you know, 10th place and 4th place? That's really, really hard uh, if, you know, you're dealing with questions that are, you know, in bucket A, like you're going to have a much harder time looking for opportunities and being able to sort of demonstrate your, uh, yourself or, 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 or get yourself in situations where you can leverage the extra effort that you have put in above average, right? Now on the C side of things, it's exactly the opposite, right? Um, much harder in fact, probably discouraging for entry-level quizzers, uh, but for your upper-tier quizzer, a lot more opportunity, right? And so as a result of those things, I think both A and C are bad. Um, and and bad's probably too strong of a word. They're non-optimal. And I think actually B is the most optimal, all other things being equal, right? Sure. So here, let me phrase it differently. I think at an upper level of quizzing no attempt should be made to write questions in a particularly easy or difficult manner. You just want to write the best ones, randomly generate quizzes, and let people have at it by altering jump speed, right? Right. Because <clears throat> I don't think, like I wouldn't make the statement that something close to 20% accuracy is the optimal at a meet like internationals, or something close to 80% is the optimal. I don't think that there's a number that's optimal. You just want to have a question set that allows people that have studied better and can execute better to distinguish themselves. And I don't think that a question set is, that is particularly hard, easy, or neither does any of that better, or, you know, necessarily. But for your younger and more inexperienced quizzers, I would definitely argue that a question set that leans, that leans toward a higher accuracy, maybe even close to 80%, is optimal. Yeah, and I don't disagree for that group of quizzer, but you don't have just that group of quizzer, right? I don't want to disin uh, disenfranchise. I don't want to disincentivize higher levels of preparation by not rewarding those higher levels of preparation, even at, let's say, a regional meet within a larger district, right? Um, and I think you do that uh, with A, sort of inadvertently, right? I think if you have questions written in in bucket B, there will be plenty of opportunities for quizzers at the 20th percentile uh, to get questions. 
and there will be opportunities for quizzers at the 80th percentile to separate themselves from other quizzers at the 80th percentile based on, you know, the extra 1% of work that they're going to put in versus somebody else at the 80 percentile level, right? Um, if you only pick A, or if you skew towards A, I think you are harming the upside potential uh, at the expense of, of really... I don't, I don't think you gain that much, right? So in a, in a question set of, let's say, or in, a, in, a, in a, a typical consolation quiz with, let's say, three uh, 20 percentile uh, teams, right? There's still going to be many questions for everybody to jump and get. And, right, there's going to be certainly some no jumps. There's going to be some a lot of no jumps on, let's say, you know, quote these two verses, right? Um, but not including a quote two versus question intentionally uh, in the question set, I think does a disservice if there happens to be an 80th percentile person who happens to be in that quiz. Right. I think you have to be assured of a very specific competitive range before you choose to skew a question set. I totally agree with that. I just think that um, if, if you're a district with the ability and the infrastructure and the number of participants to be able to do something like junior quizzing for fourth and fifth graders, I think constraining material length, question difficulty, and a lot of things is very optimal. But you have to have a very specific setup for it to be optimal. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I don't think that's true, though. I think constraining the the size of material, absolutely, right? So, I mean, it's a lot. If, if you're talking about a junior division, then and you and again, if, assuming you have the the size of district to do it, you have the logistics to pull it off. I think, actually, I'm 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 not even just think. I'm I'm fairly certain. Then you know, limiting it to let's say these ten chapters versus these you know twenty five chapters, absolutely is is a good thing right but i don't think skewing to a is necessarily good either because i think you still have plenty of opportunity uh in the naturally occurring simpler questions of bucket b to make it work and if you skew toward a somebody in the junior division who actually puts in a little effort isn't going to be able to have as many opportunities to separate themselves at the upper level of the junior division. And I don't, I don't know that there's a ton of harm that, that happens by having every so often a quote two versus question, right? I mean, if it, if, you know, sure, there might be some, you know, mostly no jumps on, on quote two versus questions, but if there's a quizzer who it's like, oh yeah, I actually did memorize those two verses, jumps and gets it, talk about a huge, you know, um, confidence boost, right? Sure. But I think I think the upside from a correct question for that segment of quizzer, especially the inexperienced or younger, is just massive. And I think the downside from the randomly being a really awesome one who is less tested by a range of question difficulties to me is like a really, really tiny downside. But like I would hate for there to be question types that I mean, I've run quizzes where you announce a quote these two verses or a chapter verse reference. And everyone sits back because they know that they don't know ma the material to even try. Um, so yeah, and I and I've been in those scenarios, and those are very depressing scenarios. But I would rather have those questions continue to exist, so so it provides a reason to push a quizzer <clears throat> beyond the status quo. Right? If you remove those, there, I think what you're doing is you're lowering the bar. I can see that, but I think there's always a balance to be had, right? So I think if you have a normal distribution of question difficulty, I, I'm thinking of removing the hardest 10% or 15%, not removing the hardest half, right? So there's still like a pretty significant range of questions, and I don't think you're losing any of that. I don't think you're dumbing down the competition and then waylaying someone later. Yeah, fair enough. I mean... And again, what we're doing here is we're assume, assuming the logistical costs are negligible. I just don't think that the, the, that that's actually true in practice. I mean, in principle, it's an interesting idea to go down, but I think in practice, it would be. I think you're going to have a better ROI if you instead pivot the time skewing the question set toward you know better coaching encouraging quizzers setting up better incentives um you know working with quizzers one-on-one -on -one, you know that that kind of thing I, I think i think you'll ultimately get more out of it that way sure 
I remember a time when I was a teenager at like a bowling event or something and someone used bumpers for one game of bowling and bowled like a 123 or something and so then decided to bowl without bumpers for the next game and then bowled like a 3 because mm. the differences between bumpers and no bumpers is enormous, right? Yeah. And yeah. that's the scenario that we wouldn't want to set up where everything is, you know, unique word on the first word and no quote these two ever and um that's definitely not the scenario that I'm I'm thinking of, but I think in very specific scenarios, um, slightly limiting the difficulty of questions would be more motivational than the current baseline. Okay, fair enough. All right, so what do you got next on, what is it, reference questions? Yeah, so this came up just last night. I was talking with someone, but um, and it made me remember why a question like they were what is a wonderful CVR, but a bad or almost terrible chapter reference. And it's... It made me think about why, because it's, of course, completely in the right material. It's completely valid, right, depending on where the other occurrences are. But to me, and this is going to be interesting if you agree with it, to me, CVRs are really testing reference knowledge and how well do you know the material by reference, whereas CRs are more testing your ability to, lo- to locate material that occurs in multiple chapters. But I- I've always thought of those as like, you're trying to find the most significant material that happens to appear in more than one chapter and not trying to find the least significant material that happens to only occur once in this chapter. Does that make sense? Yes. And for the record, I totally completely agree. Um, I think that despite the fact that there, it's only one letter difference between a CVR and a CR, I think they are designed, well, I don't, I don't know if they are intentionally designed this way, but I, but I think their purpose in life uh, is to test very different things. A, a CVR is predominantly about testing, uh, you know, do you know your references to connected to the verse? And in addition, really understanding, fully being able to at the upper levels have that verse really well memorized. Right. So like at Mm -hmm. a, at a, at a, at a lower level quizzing, you know, a CVR is really just testing. uh, Do you know the reference connected to the verse? And that's great. I think that's a good thing. Right. Um, But at that, your upper level quizzing, like, especially when you're talking about internationals, but even, you know, inter-district meets and so forth and district championships and so forth, a CVR it, it, it tests both the fact that you know your reference and you really know the verse well because the jumping speed is going to require you to not get the uh, much more than just the reference out, right? So it's it's being able to mentally parse the verse, recall it, and 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 recite it in such a way that you can actually get called for your question at the right point so that you can actually have a high probability of getting it correct. And that's, that's, that takes a lot of, you know, practice. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful type to, you know, uh, to explore and exploit. A CR is just massively different. It is, it is, it is none of those things, right? I mean, the, 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 the chapter reference that you do get is, is helpful, you know, in the, the, you can narrow things down cognitively to a chapter, but it's just testing something very, very, very different than a CVR. Yep. So this is why, like when I write reference questions, I just go through the material starting at the beginning and write questions that just look to me like reference questions, right? So if I'm staring at the reference material, I'm not writing stuff that has a unique word in it or an obvious unique phrase. But once I've written all of them, I then go through and verify what specific type they are. And so this results in um, sometimes a question like, we are what, that I'm like, oh, this is probably a CR, maybe even a CVR. But sometimes... Sometimes it is a CR in a chapter, or sometimes it's even an interrogative. And what I really should be doing is not just blindly throwing the valid type on it and moving on my way. I should say, like, do I want to ask we are what just because it happens to be an interrogative in this one year's material? Um, I think the answer would be no. That's not a good question, even if it is valid. Right. Indeed. So then my next point is it's a rule idea. And this rule idea is a li- might be a little complicated to implement, but it's basically take any reference question and then take the reason that it is a reference question. So let's say um, a chapter verse reference, he is what from, I'll just choose Hebrews one. I don't know if there's one in Hebrews one. So if every occurrence of he is what in Hebrews one has the exact same answer, then it is invalid as a CVR. 
What do you think of this idea? Yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly the way the rules are written right now, it would be valid, but I would, I would call it a valid, but poor question. And what you're doing is, is you're proposing to just make it invalid, right? Yeah, just straight up invalid. And I think you could write it very objectively. Like the answers have to be identical. Yeah. Like if one, I, answer, yeah. One, one answer is God and one answer is God the Father. They're not identical. So you can write those different CVRs, even if you might accept either answer for either. They're still not identical. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would be in favor of that rule. I mean, I think I think what it does is it, it's something that's very clear. It's very objective. It's easy to write as a rule and it eliminates some poor questions. So yeah, I'd be, I'd be cool with that. Yep. So if in a particular material, the word of God appears 20 times, um, then that the word of what is an invalid reference question. But if there's one occurrence of like the word of Peter, then it brings all of the word of God's back on the table. You still might choose not to write that. Well, actually it wouldn't bring them all necessarily back on the table. If there's nine occurrences of word of God in one chapter, and that's the only thing, then all of those CVRs would be invalid. But then Word of God from other chapters might be valid, if that makes sense. Right. So, yeah. I mean, this is just, it would be codifying something that I consider to be a best practice, but make going so far as to make it invalid. I think the gain here is relatively small, but I think it could be very easy to implement, and there are only upsides, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think it's a cost benefit analysis, right? I think the cost is very low. The value is kind of low, but I mean, mm -hmm. the, the cost is so incredibly low. Why not? Right. That's how I feel. So my next bit is different topic and it's my distillation of past umbrages. So I often talk about how um, I think deliberately writing easy questions for internationals is a bad idea or quiz masters that talk fast in an effort to get out more material or um, what's another one? I'm not sure. Those are the two that come to mind. Um, but really my distillation is I don't like anything that subverts jump speed as the sole modulator of question difficulty at a meet like internationals. So I think the questions should just be written, like write your best questions, randomly generate them into quizzes. And then it's up to the quizzers based on their preparation to whatever level they've prepared and then their level of execution and precision to decide where they like how fast they want to jump and how much risk they want to take on. And I think if people are going to in a in an un inconsistent and not necessarily disclosed manner, and I'm not saying not disclosed in a way that benefits a particular quizzer or district or segment of quizzer. I'm just saying it's not codified into a rule, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's You're removing the quizzer's ability to pick um, how difficult they want their question to be. You're, you're forcing a specific level of a specific level or a specific range of difficulty on them. And I think that that is bad. Yep. I, I 120% agree, even though that's impossible. I regret that I can only 100% agree with what you just said. So it's like, I mean, there's not something that I hate about the surface level of a quiz master talking fast. It's the effect, right? A quizzer can't choose to jump at one syllable versus two versus one and a half. And that is removing the quizzer's ability to pick that precise level of difficulty difference. And that's the same with writing questions. Like I remember, I think it was 2013, uh, Matthew year where there was not a single situation quotation that started with teacher comma, even though there's like 10 of them in the text. And every interrogative on the Beatitudes didn't start with blessed are the, it started with the unique word, which was so awkward. All the questions were like peacemakers for they shall be what? And it was like, oh, someone didn't like the idea of writing a question that isn't key until the, the fifth syllable. And so they made their own decision to write an easier question that was more awkward. And to me, write the question that isn't awkward. <laughs> and the quizzers should know, like, hey, you, if you're jumping interrogatives at two and a half syllables, you might get stuck with blessed are. And same with a situation, right? Because most quizzers would jump at a syllable and a half because that was the correct speed. But you might get stuck with a teacher 5% um, of the time, when in actuality, no quizzer ever got stuck with teacher, right? So the quizzers that were expecting those to be in the set, um, you basically said, um, you were going to have a harder time because I made a one-off decision. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. I think we're on to you now, Griffin. All right. Well, so uh, last weekend was the, uh, let's see, Adult Quizzing League meet number three. I think it was district meet number three. Uh, It was Saturday, Saturday only meet. uh, And it was a lot of fun as pretty much all the AQL meets are. And I was blessed to have the opportunity to be a quiz master for that meet. Uh, one of uh, four quiz masters. And one of the questions that came up uh, was I ended up marking and I wanted to talk about it on the podcast and uh, Scott, get your thoughts on it. So this is from Matthew 8, uh, 6. Uh, and uh, the, the verse is, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And the question was a CVR. And it is according to Matthew chapter eight, verse six, my servant, what? And on the card or, well, I don't know, quote unquote card, it's all in CBQZ. So it's, I don't know, on the screen, the answer portion on the screen uh, reads lies at home, paralyzed, period. And I'm, I, I, you know, I, I asked the question, they got the question. I think whoever got it correct. And, and I just, and I was like, cool, there was no challenge on it. I didn't throw the question out or anything like that, but I marked it with a question of, is this an incomplete answer in the sense of, I think the person answered by including suffering terribly. And then I counted them correct um, because they didn't pause after paralyzed, but had they not, and had I then, you know, answered or had I then ruled them correct because they gave me exactly what was on the, 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 the screen displayed answer. Could somebody have challenged and said, well, wait a minute, suffering terribly is part of the answer. It's it's really required. Now, I don't think a challenge could be successfully made that suffering terribly is required. But from a question writing perspective, to me, it seems like suffering terribly is really, really part of the answer. But I don't know, Scott, what do you think about this one? So first off, we talked about this on the last podcast. So this exact one? This exact one. Oh, that's funny. Um, which is weird because that occurred before this, right? Yeah, yeah. We recorded the podcast before the AQL meet. So that's very interesting. Well, because this question was already marked from the PNW meet with your comment, incomplete answer, question mark. But this Did occurred I... on Saturday? I am, I am almost 100% certain that this occurred on Saturday. Now, how on earth did that happen? I mean, okay. The very pro- the the very there's a very high probability that I just didn't fix this question based on what we talked about on the last podcast. But I thought for sure that this came up during the AQL meet. But in any case, hopefully we answered this with the same thoughts that we had in the last podcast. But I right. think question, question writers have a lot of discretion. In this case, I think the better required answer is the full lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. But I don't think stopping the required information at lies at home paralyzed is wrong or invalid, right? I just think it's less good. Um, And I wouldn't even say stopping at lies at home paralyzed is bad. I just think it's less good than including the suffering terribly. And then when you extend that to the quiz meet, as a quiz master, I don't think you should be changing the required information um, on the fly unless you think it's wrong. And then similarly, I don't think there's any challenge to be made here, right? Right. Because it's it's a gray area. The question writer can decide if they think th- the information needs to be required or not. But as an answer to my servant what, I mean, you could limit it at lies. You could limit it at lies at home. You could limit it at lies at home paralyzed. And then you could include lies at home paralyzed suffering terribly. And I don't think any of those decisions make it are an invalid decision. <laughs> and so when you're challenging, you only get to challenge on invalid versus valid, not on good versus less good or even good versus bad. Right, indeed. All right, well, let's uh, move on to our Slack channel conversation. So uh, if you are not on Slack and not in the Inside Quizzing channel, you really, really ought to be because uh, there's some, uh, there's a whole bunch of smart people on there who have some really awesome conversations about quizzing, quizzingdom, and uh, sort of quizzing theory and philosophy. Also, we share memes uh, from time to time. Uh, So it's a lot of fun. So anyway, get there if you're not there already. Uh, But uh, over the last week, there's been a lot of talk about motivations and incentives 
uh, across quizzingdom in terms of you know what works, what doesn't, what is actually motivating and incentivizing versus de-incentivizing. There are certain things that you know we might think are incentivizing and are for certain types of quizzers, but are actually demotivating or de-incentivizing for other types of quizzers. And it was an interesting discussion and so forth. Um, but Scott, do you want to share your kind of highlights on that one? Yeah, so I think people talked about many different motivations that they have personally for studying for quizzing and being a part of quizzing. And they also talked about many motivations and incentives that they have observed as working um, on others, right? And these range from the competition to... Um, cheap physical awards to very nice physical awards to um like donuts and ice cream to you know and it kind of runs the gamut but i think it's a really useful conversation because the fact of the matter is that there are all kinds of people who participate in bible quizzing for all kinds of reasons and we would like everyone to participate in Bible quizzing because they want to memorize all of the verses and score as much as possible, and we have this crazy competition. But that's not the case, and that's not bad, right? Because um, just in general, participating in a quiz program and going to practices and going to meets, it is a positive thing, regardless of the specific amount of material that you memorize. And I just thought it was a useful discussion to say, like, hey, my coach saying if everyone wins to jump the next meet, then I'll buy ice cream. That works, right? I've heard of a district who, for their internationals quizzers, right? These are quizzers that you would think just have this crazy intrinsic motivation. Um, they would give out, much like Awana bucks, if you've been part of Awana, they would give out Monopoly money for hitting various study goals um, in the lead up to internationals. And then they had a store that you could buy stuff in, like the week before internationals. And if you had told me that that would be an effective incentive for upperclassmen internationals quizzers to study more, I would have said eh, the effect would be negligible. But it was apparently it was a large effect. And I just, I thought it was fun and useful to keep having the conversation around like what are the aspects of our quiz program and our quiz meets that we want to have and to keep the possible motivations and incentives as wide-ranging as we can because you never know what will be motivating and incentivizing for a particular person to, first off, be a part of Bible quizzing, but then second off, to memorize more verses than they would have previously. Yeah, indeed. I think my take on this generally is when it comes to motivations and incentives, every quizzer every human being is different and i think as a i don't know I, I think it's a cognitive bias or at least it's a cognitive um error that that we fall into uh we as in just humans in general not just you know quizzing people uh but humans in general love to classify because it means that we get to simplify things right uh, we put sort of every uh, we 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 take every human being in the world and we put them into one of four buckets or one of eight buckets or whatever it happens to be with you know different personality tests and so forth, and I find those things ninety eight point three percent of the time to be total bunk uh, because people are way more complex than that you know like like to say I I you know I like to refer to myself as an introvert. Uh, but to take everybody in the world and put them into a bucket of like, you're an extrovert and you're an introvert. I, I'm like, sure. I mean, they might be useful shorthand, but it doesn't describe somebody. Not all introverts are the same. Not all extroverts are the same. Everybody is a unique individual in a, you know, really amazing, beautiful way, right? Our differences are beautiful. Uh, and, and I, I don't like the idea of, of dropping everybody into the same bucket or a series of buckets, right? Even to say, well, you know, a quizzer is one of seven different types and you just have to figure out what type of, of those seven the quizzer is, and then you can select the right motivation for the quizzer. I think that's a terrible way to go about it. Everybody is unique. And so there are, there are going to be incentives that work for some people, that are going to be disincentivizing to other people and there isn't a way to bucket them. Right. And so as a coach, you sort of have to look at each of your quizzers as a unique person. And I wouldn't even say sort of, you really do. Sh you really should look at each of your quizzers as a unique per unique person and say like, what is this unique person 
what are they going to be motivated by? How can I incentivize this one person, you know, kind of thing and come up with a strategy for that one person and, and do that across to everybody within your team. Similarly, like, you know, if you're a quizzer and you're thinking to yourself, well, how do I motivate myself? How do I, in I incentivize myself as a quizzer? You know, you might have examples of what other quizzers have done for themselves. And those ideas are great because they might be good ideas for you, but just because an idea worked for, you know, a bunch of other people on your team does not necessarily mean it's going to work for you. And you got to kind of learn more about yourself and figure out what works best for you. Yeah. When we were talking about whether changing the, the range of question difficulty might work for a particular um, level of quizzer. Well, even among younger and experienced quizzers, making it um, more likely for someone to get a correct question is only going to matter and change motivation and incentives for quizzers that that is super important to them too, right? <laughs> which is right. not a hundred percent. Which is not a hundred percent of quizzers. And so I just I think it's interesting to see how say PNW has changed over the years. Like when I quizzed, um, there were a lot more teams. And so as a result, we were only able to have three prelims per team. So we were quizzing six to eight times a meet and not eight to ten. And so as a result, when you have more teams and each team quizzing less, there was a tremendous amount of downtime, which led to games of chess and risk and sorry and Parcheesi and basketball and all kinds of other stuff that we have a lot less of now, right? Um, right. And it, they're just... These ebbs and flows, often based on logistics, but it's interesting to always be thinking about how those affect um, participation and motivation, because it could be a lot of quizzers really enjoy that sort of downtime and social time amidst the quizzes. And if you have less of that, you might, all things being equal, have less participation from people who are motivated in that way. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, so uh, let's talk about thriving districts a little bit. So this comes from something of a soapboxy thing that I got on, I don't know, about a week ago or something like that. I think it was like the day after our last podcast or something. So, you know, six days ago or something. Um, and I basically threw out this idea on the inside quizzing Slack channel that there are in, from my perspective, I think there are two things that create and sustain what I would call a thriving district. What is a thriving district? Well, I don't know. It's a, you know, it's a good thing. Non-thriving districts are, are not as good as thriving districts. How's that for a definition? I mean, a thriving district could be said to be growing, maybe. It could be said to have a certain level of energy, a certain level of, like, people are excited to be there. Um, I don't know. It's, it's accomplishing mission uh, more effectively. It's getting more quizzers to memorize more verses than it otherwise would if it wasn't thriving. So I don't know. It's a, it's a pretty vague, you know, definition there, but assuming that, that you accept that definition of, of, of a thriving district, I think a thriving district has two properties and each of these, you know, it has some specific words, but each of these words is, are, are sort of heavily loaded. So first and, and most important, I think in a thriving district, you have a critical mass of quizzers with a positive quizzing culture, right? So what does critical mass mean? I don't really know, but there is a certain number of size and it, it's kind of like, I think it's number of churches involved. That's my theory, not necessarily the number of quizzers or the number of teams. And I think it's a, I think critical mass is some number of churches above a minimum threshold to sort of allow for a sustained culture of competitive quizzing between churches. And I, like, like I said, I don't really know what that number is, but based on what I have observed, it feels like some number around six to nine, where like, once you have more than six to nine churches involved, you have this sort of like critical mass where there's a certain, I don't know, je ne sais quoi, some sort of energy that's there uh, that sort of builds on itself. Um, and obviously there's going to be a lot of contributing factors here. This is, this is, I'm, this is more art than science. So don't read too much into that six to nine number, but that's just sort of, that's kind of what I'm feeling. Right. Uh, and then what is, you know, positive quizzing culture mean, right? Well, I think it's the, 
again, this is another, you know, je ne sais quoi. I don't really know how to describe this, but it's like, uh, it's sort of like a, I encourage you, I high five you, I pray with you and I love you and I cheer for you and I will destroy you utterly in terms of, you know, points in competition, right? Um, that sort of positive quizzing culture where we are, you know, highly competitive and destroy each other on the platform and yet simultaneously love and encourage and lift up and high five and all of that, those kind of good things, right? Um, and still be great friends even after I destroy you in the competition kind of stuff, right? That, that to me is the, the, the positive quizzing culture. So anyway, that's the first and foremost thing. A thriving district needs to have a critical mass of quizzers with a positive quizzing culture. And then the second thing I think that is necessary in a thriving <laughs> district is an engaged, active, and healthy leadership. Um, and all of those words are like highly overloaded, right? What does engaged mean? What does active mean? What does healthy mean? Uh, there's a lot of stuff, right? I mean, engaged and active, you need to have leaders who are not phoning it in. They're always looking for ways to improve quizzing by that 1%. You know, uh, we a few podcasts ago, a few months ago, we were talking about like, always look for an opportunity to improve quizzing by 1%. I, you know, every week, every, you know, quiz me, whatever it happens to be. Is there a way to improve how I'm doing in quizzing? Uh, is there a way a coach can be 1% better? A team can be 1% better? A quizzer can be 1% better? Uh, is there a way for an official to be 1% better? Uh, a quiz leadership to be 1% better? Always be looking for ways of of tuning that in, and, and always look for, you know, ways to improve at, w at whatever you happen to be doing in quizzing, right? Um, so I think... That's sort of the the engaged and active idea. You need to have leadership that that is thinking that way. That sort of that's that's part of why they're doing quizzing is they're 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 not phoning it in. They're not looking at it from a perspective of like what do I do right now to just get this meet over with, right? Um, or wrap up this season. But rather they're saying like, hey, we've got one meet left in this season, or we've got two meets left in this season. What can we do? to squeeze out just even one more drop of, of goodness, you know, uh, through the quizzing pr uh, process. Right. And then, then I also said healthy. I think the leadership needs to be healthy. Um, and again, that's super overloaded, right. But like healthy in terms of like, why are leaders there? Are they there to, to support the mission, like get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, or are they there for, you know, personal reasons? Like they just, they want the title or their prestige or, you know, an ego boost or something like that. I mean, we, I've, we've talked in the past about, you know, there, there have been times in the past where quiz masters have been seemingly there for an ego boost rather than for, you know, the benefits of the program. Um, and I, I'd call, you know, being there for, a, your, you know, an ego boost, an unhealthy uh, type of leader. Uh, but then there's also things like healthy uh, leadership in terms of Christianity, um, so, you know, am I being a good follower of Christ by doing quizzing and, and in what way, right? And then there's also healthy in terms of longevity, uh, looking for the, ensuring that you're not going to, you know, reach burnout. This is something that, you know, I struggle with. I, I'm, I'm very into quizzing. Scott's very into quizzing. Uh, how do we sustain that level of investment without burning out? Because uh, you don't want to burn out because essentially you go from heavy investment to zero, you know, when you hit burnout or very close to zero when you hit burnout. And that's not good for anybody, especially for the leader, right? So uh, where's that level of health and, and being able to measure that? Um, but I think another part of healthy leadership is also looking for the opportunities to identify future leaders and make them uh, or, or set them up so that they're not always in the future, if that makes any sense. Right. So I think a leader, I, I think a leader always needs to be looking for his or her replacement, looking for that replacement early, identifying those people because it needs to be more than one because you need redundancy. Right. Um, so looking for multiple people to replace you, identifying them and giving, encouraging them and really giving them the opportunity to replace you, you know, it, you know, at first, not necessarily fully replacing you, but uh, certainly providing them an opportunity to get a lot of experience and then truly 
to the point of actually genuinely replacing you. I think when folks stay in leadership positions too long, what they're doing is they're preventing future leaders from, you know, coming into the present. Uh, so anyway, that was a big, long spew of, of theory. But Scott, what are your thoughts on this? And do you, do you agree, disagree? What do you disagree with and, and why? I think I agree with all of those things. Um, I don't think I have as codified thoughts as, as you do. But I think oftentimes we look at programs that are very competitive internationals or are very large. And we just automatically label them as the healthiest. And that may be the case. But I think inertia is a big deal. And oftentimes districts that are just larger will have more success purely by virtue of them being larger, all things being equal. Um, and that kind of begets more interest. Um, and I think I think inertia matters a lot. And so I would hesitate to necessarily label um, larger or more competitive districts as like it is the success of the leaders. Um, again, not saying it's not, but um, I think it is easy to credit something obvious like that um, versus looking at maybe lower tier things. I mean, I can think of one district that appears very healthy. And if you look at um, leadership, they've had a steady stream of different leaders with seemingly no other change to the district. And so that that kind of fits into one of your um, beliefs that there is not a single leader handling it for a decade or or longer, right? There's turnover in a good way in that people are being given the opportunity to grow and fulfill that leadership role. Um, as an anecdote, I remember there was a church within PNW who was very large, very competitive, and then it, they had a district coordinator, uh, a program leader change, and pretty quickly got super small. And you might say, like, what did that program leader do wrong? Well, if you look at the church as a whole, membership um, just nosedived, and youth group attendance just nosedived, and the quiz program was really just a byproduct of those other factors and not anything that was done wrong by that program leader that was done right by the previous, right? And so I think, I mean, I think all that you said is right, and I don't know what that means as far as action, right? I mean, I th there might be little bits, like if you are running a district, what are you doing to um, rise up future leaders? But as far as just healthy and active, I'm not sure, like, big ways that you speak that you spur it on, right? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on where you're at, right? If you're a coach, uh, especially if you're a program leader coach uh, at a church, uh, be looking for who your next program leader at the church is going to be, right? Identifying that person as early as possible and probably identifying more than one person and training those people and giving them the opportunity uh, you know, at worst case scenario, if you stick around a little bit longer as the program leader, it means you have assistant program leaders that you can delegate stuff to, and it means you have less work to do yourself, right? Uh, it means you have the opportunity of doing more because you have more people doing stuff, right? Uh, but it also sets up the stage such that when you're, you're feeling like, yeah, I, I need to take a break or I need to take a step back. I still want to be involved in quizzing, but I, I can't be a program leader for whatever, you know, reason, you know, uh, work-life balance or whatever it happens to be, then your program is already set up so that there isn't some great like calamity or, or like the person coming in and taking over isn't like saying, well, wait a minute, how do I do this? And how do, how does this work? They already know everything. They're ready to go uh, because you've trained them, you've mentored them and, and you've, you've, you know, helped them get ready. Right. There's, there's been scenarios where, you know, in PNW, I've seen this happen at the church level time and time and time again, where you have a very strong single leader, you know, single in the sense of they're the only leader, not that they're, you know, not married or anything like that, but like, like you have a, 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 a person who is a singular leader of a particular program and the program is very healthy because of the energy and drive and sort of leadership of that one person, right? And then the one person gets to a point for whatever reason, either their kids graduate the program or they move uh, away from the church uh, or, or whatever, you know, it, there's, there's some sort of reason where they're like, okay, great, this is my last season as the head coach of such and such church. And 
what ends up happening, and I've seen this over and over and over again, the, there's this sort of like, well, who's going to even lead the program now? We don't know yet. And somebody will end up volunteering. And for a good two or three months of the next season, they're just kind of floundering. They're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm just kind of learning as I go. And the program suffers as a result of that. Right. And it was, and, and, and I, I can look at that and I can put the blame squarely on the previous program leader for not setting up the future program leaders. Right. And so I think I, I'm now able to codify some of my thoughts. I think two of the biggest things that can be done in a district is one is just pure action. If I look at the program leaders in PNW that have been program leaders for a long time, um, they just put in more effort. Right. And the effort takes all kinds of different forms. It's not like one kind of effort is right or optimal, but it's it's all the work that you do to interact with and engage with your quizzers. Um, so effort is just pure effort. If you are trying, it is going to be a good thing. But then the second one is that teaching and raising up of leaders like you should be actively trying to find more program leaders, more um, district coordinators, more quiz masters and statisticians and whatever roles that you have, um, there sh- you should always be trying to have um, double what you need, if not more, which kind of, it, you're building the muscles of always teaching and focusing on your processes and systems instead of one singular person um, and making sure that you are resilient when there is going to be inevitable change. Right. Well, and this also works at the quizzer level, too. Um, And I think the benefits at the quizzer level are even stronger than, say, at the church level. Right. So I'll give you a tale of two uh, captains. And this is this is kind of an interesting story because these two captains are actually the same person, but separated by years right so i there was a particular back when i was a a head coach of a program there was a particular quizzer who was very good he was an internationals quizzer multiple years over and uh you know he quizzed for you know the entire rotation of the material uh well sorry he he quizzed for you know every year that he was eligible to quiz he quizzed right and there were the first i don't know three maybe four years that he quizzed uh was sort of captain type one and then for the remainder of, of his his experience, he was Captain Type 2, right? So Captain Type 1 was generally a 90 quizzer. Uh, he, and what would end up happening is we the, the team that he was on would always score 110. Uh, and it was a very, very occasionally they might get 120, but generally they were a 110 team. Uh, he would score 90 points, quiz out, everybody else would get nothing. And they'd get the 20 point, you know, starting bonus. And that would be that right in the, the, you know, captain number two era, this guy would, he would, they, they would almost never have a score less than 150. And it was not terribly uncommon to see third quizzer bonuses. It was actually fairly I don't know. It wasn't every quiz, but it was regular enough that it wasn't terribly surprising to see, you know, a a fairly routine uh, series of of third quiz or bonuses. And it would be very easy to say, oh, well, it was because in those latter years, he was just paired with quizzers who put in more study time and so forth. And it's like, "Mm, maybe, but I think there's more to it than that. I think in the latter years there, the quizzer, the, the captain took a really engaged and very passionate um he he took it as his own as his responsibility to mentor and encourage and and help as much as he could his fellow teammates right uh helping them be better so that they enjoyed quizzing more and that helped the team uh more and uh I don't know. I, I think that those sorts of opportunities, they exist everywhere. You know, whether you are a captain or not, whether you're a head coach or an assistant coach, uh, whatever your job happens to be, I think you have opportunities to find folks, encourage them, lift them up and prepare them for uh, something greater. And I think there are ways that you can look at yourself and find 1% improvements, no matter who you are. Like you can be, you know, the, you're the best quizzer in a district. And I, I still think you can find 
you know, opportunities for 1% growth. And one thing I've learned is that the skill sets required to be a really good coach, a really good quiz master, a really good quizzer are tremendously not overlapping. That's um, true. Very true. They they don't overlap to a degree that surprises me. And so I think um, you you might be surprised where you find really good coaches and really good officials and district coordinators and all of that. Yeah, that's very, very true. All right. Well, we are a little over time, but it was very fun along the way. So I want to remind everybody, if you are in agreement with us, please, you know, email us. But if you are in disagreement with anything that we've said on this or any previous podcast, we really, really especially want to hear from you. Uh, We would love for you to email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter and you should. Uh, Our uh, Twitter account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you want to engage in conversation uh, between podcast episodes, you can chat with us in kind of almost real time on Slack on the Inside Quizzing channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening, everybody. 